we are trying to build something which is quite compact, unlike a chemical battery, which is usually installed in scattered areas in containers, we can stack up our units. So in, let's say, a footprint of 15 by 15 meters and uh, uh, up to 20 or so meters, we can go to 500 megawatt hour uh, storage capacity. And then you will have some three, four containers, 40 foot containers for electrical equipment, but not something which takes a lot of space. Welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast, and I'm really pleased to be joined today by Daron Brenmiller, who is Chief Business Officer of Brenmiller, eponymously named business, uh, developers of carbon-free thermal storage. And we're going to have sort of two different aspects to our conversation. One is clearly about the applications for thermal storage, particularly um, as it gets into the, the higher levels of industrial heat, which is where our audience is mostly sitting. But we're also going to get Daron's, uh, I guess, your feedback, really, on what it's been like trying to tap into the EU Green Industrial Plan, because I think it'll be interesting for people to hear like, really what's what's a working experience of that been. But first of all, hello. And uh, would you like to just give it a little bit of a, more of an intro to you uh, and your background in the, in the business? Yeah. So first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so uh, I'm the Chief Business Officer of Bramiller Energy. Um, I was actually also one of the co-founders of, of Brenmiller when we started the company back in 2012. Uh, our team comes from a lot of experience of solar thermal uh, being in the past part of uh, companies named Solel and then Siemens CSP. Uh, and I joined this team together with my father and my brother um, in 2012 when we formed this company uh, with the leading team coming from that experience. I'm coming from background of uh, electrical engineering and, and uh, an MBA, uh, and I took on the role of managing all the commercial activities of the company. So from the beginning up until where we are today, building partnerships, commercializing the technology, and I keep on doing that uh, today uh, in the company. Thanks for that. And always interesting uh, for me, certainly, is to hear how how did you come to this kind of area of work? So I get, you know, you've got this electrical engineering background, you've got your MBA, but you could apply that in any number of areas. So so what was it about this particular area um, that sort of really drew you in? How, how did that decision come about? So actually, I was born and raised on, on you know, on, on these type of topics. My father has been in this field since the 80s. So it didn't really start after I, I, I studied something or... or uh, uh, after after my the university training, I, it really started when I was growing up, um, understanding what could be developed, what could be implemented to make this world, you know, a cleaner, cleaner world. Um, so I took it from from the house when I was very very young, and then grew into it and realized it's something I'm very passionate about. Uh, as I continued on in my in my uh, um, my career, um, and up until today, I think it's an exciting field to be, um, and and it's growing, it's evolving. And we really took this, uh, I think, unique niche of being thermal energy storage. We're actually, I think, one of the very few companies who really worked on this field in 2012. Today, there are more. But I think we are one of the pioneers and it uh, come to thermal storage or to the energy storage field from this from this direction of thermal energy storage and not chemicals. We see or other types that are more known maybe to the general population. So um, this is where we, where we come from and where we are uh, today. 
I just want to take this opportunity to thank our production partner and sponsor, Jano Media, for their support in delivering the Decarb Connect podcast. Over the last few years, they've helped us to facilitate great conversations that connect us with our audience. And their skills and expertise mean that we get to concentrate exclusively on generating the content, the conversations that engage, inform and inspire. Well, I feel like there's a whole other podcast that should talk to people about what it's like to work in a family business. But luckily for you, that is not this one. We're going to focus on technology, but also this other angle of um, tapping into the EU green industrial plan. But before we talk about the, that finance EU piece, can you just give us that layman's overview? So you've mentioned that Bren Miller has this uh, thermal energy storage tech, but just give us a little bit more and bear in mind that the audience contains people that will probably know a lot and also plenty of people that do not. So a kind of, yeah, a good intro would be helpful. And then we'll talk a little more about the EU. Yeah, so so happy to do that. So, so basically the concept underneath what we do is quite simple. It is based on studies and, and, and things that we know of heating a media, uh, we know maybe how to heat up media in, in water tanks of hot water. Um, we know rocks in a sauna, which we heat up to create a, a steam. Um, and, and we do something very similar. So we can look at it as a heat battery, but a high temperature heat battery. We are using crushed compacted rocks, stones, so it's physical media uh, to store this heat. But it comes in kind of metal casings, which has also very good qualities of heat transfer and capacity and steam generation, which is very important when you look into these fields. Uh, so we heat up this battery up to around 700 degrees C. We can do it by electrically charging uh, our unit um, from renewable energy from the grid. We can also heat it up directly with different heat at high temperature uh, for coming from combustion of biomass from waste heat. And then this heat is captured, capsulated in these modular uh, units. We call them B-gens uh, or, or B-cubes is the modular unit. We, we connect them together and we discharge the heat when it is needed. So we completely decouple between when we have available electricity to when do we need the heat. And it's a very important thing because you have renewable power when you have sun or wind and you need your heat around the clock uh, to your manufacturing plant. Um, to work according to what you need for your processes and, and decouple the two. So this is basically how we do it. We also use media which is very durable, very clean, does not degrade with time, have a good uh, cost structure because it's known material you can source almost everywhere and manufacture everywhere. So this is very these are very important parameters when you look for long long term uh, solutions. Great. Well, I think that's a good intro. We are going to come back later in the conversation to look at a couple of projects and to talk a little more about um, Bren Miller and the technology. But let's let's have a look at um, this kind of funny area, well, thorny area sometimes of the EU, EU's green industrial plan. And I, I say that because probably for every company that we come across that has been able to benefit from it, there's another company that's utterly befuddled by, you know, how they're going to go about securing that kind of incentive or, or funding or support. Obviously, you've you've had some success here, so I wonder if you can just give me give me your kind of perspective on the EU, the incentives and the support for industrial decarbonisation, and and where where have you been able to have some success in tapping into it? 
Yeah, so so there are many type of subsidies that are, that are available for different things. I mean, we have subsidies from uh, or, or funding coming from European banks to build our manufacturing lines and develop the technology up to where well today when we have available subsidies for our projects. Um, some of them or a lot of them are coming for different uh, innovation or decarbonization funds funds that are being gathered and collected from, from different carbon tax uh, or different budgets in Europe, uh, either local in some countries, but also EU, uh, general EU uh, funds like the innovation funds, which can fund capital investment into projects uh, of up to 60 or even more percent coverage. Uh, these are not very new, uh, but they have been around for, for a while. Um, but we have seen recently also new type of fundings that are part of maybe the cry uh, as a result of the crisis uh, we saw in Europe and, and surge in energy prices in the last couple of years. Uh, we see different types of uh, funding which also helps with the OPEX side. Uh, why is it important? When you look to decarbonize or electrify an industrial process, capital investment is an important part. You want to reduce it. You want to have the subsidies to do it, but you also want to make sure that on an ongoing basis, it doesn't cost you more to decarbonize or electrify. You don't want to go and just be green. It's important. It's usually not enough. You want to make sure that you don't only not lose money, but also you also gain money from making this transition. Most, most of the customers want to have at least something which is break even, preferably also saving them something. So if you're competing with, with an alternative, which is a fossil fuel, which could be at times a low cost alternative like natural gas in sometimes um, of the year, then you want to make sure that also your OPEX, your cost of the alternative of the electricity which you are charging, uh, for example, is is uh, is competitive. And we see programs. We just saw a prog program going out of Germany a few weeks ago, which is really tap tapping into this very difficult part of the fun funding. Which is saying to, to those industrial customers, listen, it's gonna you pay now, let's say, a cent for your kilowatt. It will cost you one and a half or two cents to do it in a green, independent of fossil fuel way. We're gonna we're gonna fund it. You're gonna calculate it 15 years into the future, and we'll give you the check today to go and build and go to make this transformation. This is a very big change. We haven't seen such programs around the world, although we've seen very big programs in the US coming out recently, et cetera. This type of funding, which really tackles this, this part of operational expense of ongoing costs is, is something which is relatively new. And I hope other countries will, will adopt it because we, we think it will really accelerate this type of change. And we need many, many industrial places are kind of on the verge thinking we want to do it, but it's more expensive. It will just push them through. Execution, and I think I think it's a very big uh, uh, thing. And we are we are pursuing all of the avenues, both the capex and opex, in the projects that we are developing or we are selling equipment to. So one of the things that kind of strikes me as you're talking, like you're quite right, you're talking about these various uh, EU programs, the German program, you know, there's various things that people can tap into, and actually even just keeping track of them is a piece of work in itself. So is that, does that sit with you or do you, do you have a consultant that you're working with? Like li literally as a, as a developing family led business, like how do you keep track of what is possible and, and what's worth tapping into? 
So, so we started with, with consultants and firms that helped us. And sometimes it's still needed because when we go to a new country, we need to understand the local uh, incentives. Um, I, I have to say that with time, we grew some expertise also in-house on how to do it. So it depends on the program. And you're right. What we know today is maybe different tomorrow. So especially in places like Germany, it's quite complex to understand. So typically we work with local partners and channels to these markets, which are local and can understand better, or we bring consultants. And in some cases, we already have to know our in-house uh, to submit. But I, I would say that there's no one project in this field, I think today in Europe, but probably also in the US, which is not being funded this way or another with one of those state or, or, or EU programs. Uh, and, and you're right, it's a lot of know-how. We try to keep update, uh, keep you know ourselves, ourselves updated. But it also takes sometimes some local expertise to to really you know tap into these uh, funds. And are you finding that when you initiate a project with a, a client or a collaborator, do, are they as aware of the funding opportunities as you, or is is almost part of what you're bringing to the table that knowledge that you've developed? You know, how how would you describe that kind of balance of knowledge about what's available? So sometimes they are aware. Um, the more sophisticated ones, which have the, their own consultants and their own, you know, so a lot of them are not, or even if they are aware, they don't fully know how to submit uh, applications for these programs. It's not always very easy. We are working on one now. It could be, you know, 50 or 100 pages long, and you need to do different calculations that not only, you know, manufacturer owners of, of a plant or workers in a manufacturing plant knows how to do that. And uh, you need to have sometimes the right team members or build a consortium. So there is a lot of know-how. I believe we bring it to the table with us or with partners. We also look, work with other utilities or developers sometimes to build a fully integrated solution to a customer. Even what we know or do sometimes is not, not enough. We work, as I said, with large European players to do that. And we bring typically also the ability to submit. Even if the submission has to go out under the customer's name, we help him through the process. We help him understand if he's eligible, what he needs to do to submit, etc. So yeah, I can say it's something that we we definitely also bring to the table when we go to to a customer. Okay, and just one last question on this, and then we'll move into talking more about your your actual core business. Um, so if you imagine that somewhere out there listening to this is a, a tech company, maybe ten years behind, you know, your development cycle, what what advice would you give them? Are there sort of one or two things that you like, yeah, if I went back in time and was at that stage, here's what I'd do, but specifically around this kind of opportunity for incentives or, or subsidies, what, what would you say to that up and coming tech coming tech company? So I would say two things. First, uh, it's not related to incentives, but it, sometimes they don't know it's going to take them 10 years. So you need to be patient. You need to understand it's a very long journey. We thought it would take us faster, but in this field to develop a new technology from scratch and test it and validate it and sell it and commercialize it, it's at least a 10-year cycle. So uh, and not everybody knows that. So you have to, to, to think very clearly how you're going to make this work. You need to make sure that your investors understand what they're getting into. Um, I can say that we have a lot of lessons learned in this field, but the first thing is to know it's going to take a lot of time and money to, to validate and develop such a technology. So if, if you want to do something quick, you're in the wrong business. Um, and the second thing I would say is that there are different funny incentives that are different for each stage that you need, and you need to understand the mechanism. So a funding program to do a, pilot, a small-scale pilot is one 
want to do a full implementation of industrial in the industrial decarbonization project is something completely different. Um, and 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 you need to understand uh, what you what's proper for your stage, and then try to go for it. Uh, and we spent some time submitting to someone something that we didn't have any chance to get because of the level of the maturity of the technology. Um, you need to understand where you are. You need to know who to work with, because you know we are, for example, a non-European country. Uh, so we need to understand when you project in Europe how to submit or with who to submit to really get you know decent chances to really win these grants and get the projects done. So it's it's important to, to try to understand. And if you are not expert, try it at first to get the expertise um, outside because knowledge is it could be a lot of, of money uh, in this case. Okay, useful. Thank you for that. Okay, so we will turn back to Brian Miller itself and the technology. So the the focus at the moment, and we were talking about this just before we hit record, is is on stored temperature ranges up to seven hundred degrees Celsius. So two questions there. One is, what types of um, industry or or companies does that lend itself to right now? But then the second question is, you know, Decarb Connect. Our focus is very much on uh, the harder to abate industrial. So of course, our interest is in. And what's it going to take to get that kind of long-term storage of heat up to 1,200 degrees or, or more? So there's two two angles to this, I guess. But let, let's kick off with 700 degrees. Who does this work for right now? And and tell us a bit more about that. Okay. So, so I mean, what, one general comment about heat, I think, that maybe, you know, a lot of your listeners are aware, and, and I'm sure you are too, but... Heat is, of course, a very big uh, part of the of the puzzle of everything that we, as a humanity, generate or consume. So it, over 50% of what you consume goes to thermal energy. And industrial heat is about 25-30% of the heat of the emissions that we generate in the world. So it's a really, really difficult or uh, big part. And it's, it's uh, very difficult to decarbonize all of temperature ranges. So I wouldn't say that today... And, and we see a good coverage of of, uh, of heat in any range, maybe in the low temperature, uh, hot water range, let's say up to 100 degrees or so, uh, you have some more known solutions today, like heat pumps, for example. Um, but above that, still the majority of the heat is being generated with fossil fuel boilers, burners, um, uh, stoves, ovens, etc. So I would say anything about one or 150 degrees C today, I, I see it as difficult to decarbonize or still very kind of untreated market. We are working mainly on this area of 150 to let's say 550 degrees heat, which is we are providing. So again, we do understand we are storing. Typically any high temperature storage solution would store temperatures at a certain level and then deliver something a bit lower. The bigger the gap would be between what we are storing, you said 700, for example, in our case, and what we are delivering, the more efficient we would be. We could store more energy in a given volume. So it's important to understand that. It's a bit technical, but it's important to understand it because even if I can heat up my storage to 1,000 to 1,200 degrees, if I'm going to deliver the energy at similar temperatures, it's going to be a very inefficient process. To do it efficiently, I'm going to need to heat up my storage to 1,500 degrees, for example. Um, but but my point is, is, first, there is a lot of customers in the field of medium temperature, what I mentioned, 150 to 500, 550, chemicals, food, tobacco, refining, um, 
um, are all are all in this field of operating on saturated steam or steam at temperatures that I mentioned. Um, the harder part is, as you mentioned, above that. Um, it's hard um, because it's high temperatures because you have to create a system which is both durable uh, in terms of materials, but also for a long period of time. You don't want to install something heated up to very high temperature and then have it completely eroded after you know two years. So this is this is challenge in terms of materials. I can say that we are working today on the next stage of 1,000 degrees, um, and I believe we'll get there. But it is challenging both on the technology side. Um, but again, I think I think the market that I mentioned is very strong today for us. Many companies in this field of medium temperature are looking for the carbonates to replace their heat boilers. And, and the next step will be, as you mentioned, to go to, to cement, to steel, um, to glass, to places which do need higher temperatures. But I'm just saying we have a lot of work to be done even, even before we go to these temperature ranges. And I'm assuming, kind of guessing, that it's not just a case of you know, it's actually so it starts being a different process once you're getting to that that level of heat. Is that is that true? Like rather than just scaling up, that what you have have now and literally in terms of space or something like that, it is it a different process that would need to go through? It it could be it would be in this type of high high temperatures would be probably a different storage media. Um, on it's not just the media the storage. There's entire system around it which needs to be endured. And handle high temperatures, getting them in the, the heat, getting out the heat. You have to find resistive heaters or, or electrical heaters that can restore these very high temperatures over long cycles. Um, so there is a lot of, of you know uh, development you need to use, as I said, the more more expensive, more unique uh, materials, and have probably a higher erosion. So there are, there are challenges there. It is challenging. It will cost more. The systems will be more expensive to get to these temperatures. And again. You have to remember you, you you can be too expensive. As I said, we have to compete with some alternative, which is out which is out there producing their heat today. So I would still say it's it's I believe it would still be challenging in the in the near term. The technology will get there eventually, and as we gain more and more experience, also with medium or high 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 medium temperatures, we'll build up the experience and the know how also to go and, and increase all the time our, our temperatures. Okay. Well, just sort of building on that, that the, the marketplace that you were just talking about there. So you you referenced refining food chemicals, obviously on your website, uh, and we were talking again off air that uh, you've had projects in place with power generation companies as well. So yes. EU market, I guess, must be a pretty good market to be in at the moment, in part due to this kind of higher energy prices that we've been seeing, and certainly. I guess people are still talking about energy insecurity. It seemed to be the theme of last year. Um, so what uh, what what are the main kind of groups that you really see reaching out to you at the moment? Is it, you know, that power gen utilities piece or or is it, you know, all sorts, you know, just depending where they are in their own journey around um, CO2 reduction? So we are we are seeing again two types. We are working in two spaces: the industrial space and the utility space. So in the utility space, we do different solutions for also for large thermal power plants. We have a project like that with an in Italy to decarbonize or make thermal generation more flexible. But we are doing a, another thing with these type of utilities because many of the utilities like Enel are also big renewable developers which have their own large set of industrial customers. And also, as I mentioned before, we are partnering with them to offer a full solution for the industrial clients. 
Um, and the industry clients uh, um, that are looking for such solutions. So in the past, it used to be more the ones that are really looking at their ESG goals and marks and have very strong and active investors who wants them to go clean and green. Um, but recently, because of, as you mentioned, the, the higher, the rising energy cost and also the uncertainty. So maybe the costs are going down now, but the uncertainty and, and you know, what they experienced in the last two years really left a mark. And they're looking to be less dependent on, on fossil fuels that someone could shut down and also less dependent on the volatility of these prices. And by, uh, for example, electrifying heat with a renewable source, um, you actually hedge your energy costs. So you can get not just clean, clean, clean green power, you also get um, some uh, understanding of your energy cost, you know, 20, 30 years going forward. So we see it not just being those clients which are, you know, in the top 10th of being, you know, a, a ESG, a, you know, followers. We see uh, many that are also looking at as an alternative solution for fuels in terms of economics and, and in terms of, of uh, hedging your, your risk. And we are working either directly with these customers or, as I said, with, with our utility partners that are going with us and offering a full package with thermal storage, with the PV field or wind farm, or just green electricity they can bring from their renewable assets. Maybe in some cases they also install other uh, equipment like a um, heat pump or a battery to bring a full solution. Uh, but but really we are usually a key part of this solution as industrial heat is typically could be you know 50 or 70% of the energy consumption of those industrial players. Okay, so kind of useful to hear that, I think, about about where you play in those two adjacent but but different kind of markets. It's one of the things that was interesting, I think, um, learning about Breadmiller is, is, I mean, you said earlier, people need to understand it's a journey and it's, you know, 10 years plus, but 10 years plus on from when you founded, you now start listed and uh, have your first gigafactory opening by the end of this year. I, I wonder what what have you learned from that development process? Because there's a a cycle of growth in a you know startup through to scale up through to gigafactory builder. I mean that's quite that's quite a step change. So what what have you learned from that particular part of the the, the journey and the process so far? So. As I said, the, the, the journey is already quite long and we started from a startup to a company which is a public uh, company first in Israel and then in the NASDAQ. Um, we, I, I believe we are still you know, a young company in, 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 you know, in the life of such, such industries. Um, but getting, I think, to commercialization is, as I said, a long path because sometimes we believe that you know, demonstrating the technology is enough. Uh, so you demonstrate it in a certain scale and then you have to scale it up. And then you have to find usually more than one a, a customers which are willing to test your technology and validate it. And it took us, for example, in the project I mentioned in Italy with an about three years process to get them on board to do the, the first installation. The second one is already easy. Um, and the same thing goes into the product development life cycle. So you start in your lab, you do some experiment, experiments, you get some results, you say, okay, looks okay. Then you, you, we did, I think, four or five generations of demonstrations until we got to a scale when we could convince someone to finance you know, an external project or in project we could give for free to a customer for him to one because you have to understand these customers are very conservative with their energy. They don't want you to experiment on them and interrupt with the processes. So you have to be quite solidly proven before they will allow you in their, in their backyard. 
So we had to go through the development of the product to test it over a few generations. And then you have um, also to be ready to manufacture at scale because once the, the seeds it working, they want to make sure that you, you can go at the scale that they need, even if you have 20 or 50 or 100 products at the same time. So um, the scale that we beat now, a four gigawatt hour scale, I can say is, is a good scale, but even that is, is not sufficient for a future problem. It's just the first uh, manufacturing plant that we did. Um, and, and these clients want to see the scale. You also need to do automation to get to the price that you want because okay you can do a first installation by building them quickly in-house it's going to cost more but you say it's okay it's the first or second time i do that the costs are not it's not critical but you know we are we are a public company the costs and the revenues and and, and the profits is important so we also have to scale up and go down the cost reduction curve so it's not enough to say yeah it's going to cost me a thousand today but i will believe i'll be at uh, 50 five years from now, you really need to start making the steps to make it happen. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, there's a very big uh, a gap along the way that you can, you know, uh, fail. So yeah, I think it's very important to have those things progress, you know, at the same time, both on automating uh, in your product and of course making it work and also building the company in a way that has strong financial back, uh, background the companies you're selling to those industrial facilities want to make sure that you'll be around also in three and five and 10 years from now because they are dependent on you. It's new for them. They don't have 10 other suppliers which can come and step in and, you know, make it work. So uh, all of these things are, are, are real barriers, I would say, in our field to make to make the journey from a nice startup into actually commercial, commercially viable technology. Yeah. I think an interesting question is to, uh, you studied an MBA, but it feels like you've lived an MBA as well through that whole <laughs> whole series of events. Um, so, where out of interest, where where is that Gigafactory going to be built? Is it is it kind of close to uh, European customers? Is it in Israel? Is it somewhere else? Where where are you planning for that? So the first one is already built and operational. We just inaugurated uh, a couple of months ago in Israel. It was funded by the European Investment Bank. So uh, I think we are the first company in our field to actually have, you know, there are a lot of announcements, but actually the building are now operating a gigawatt hour facility. And as I said, it's not, it's it's the first one, honestly, uh, it was located in Israel because we wanted to, the first one to be close to home for us to be able to, you know, uh, make sure that the, it's close to us to work on and make sure it works properly. And also because we, our project was kind of scattered. So we had projects in Brazil, in Europe, in the US, um, so we said, okay, it's not enough pipeline in each country to build their manufacturing plant, but the plan is the next uh, um, production plants, which are planned to, to be rolled out in the next years, not five or 10 years, in the next year or two, I believe we'll have another line, are where the projects are going to be. We want to make sure it's close to the projects or to the raw materials. These things that we are building are heavy. We don't, we want to minimize transportation. We want to provide local jobs also where the projects are, where the subsidies are coming from. In many subsidies, it's a condition to receive the full grants. So uh, I would envision that the next facility we'll see will probably be in Europe, uh, the way that we look at our projects uh, pipeline now. Later on, we, we also see them in, in South America and in, in the US. This is how I believe we, we will see it. But the first one is already working here uh, in Israel. Great. Okay, well, let's let's now take a look at one of the projects. Um, 
up to you. You can choose. Is it going to be that I know we talked about the one called Tempo, which is in your pipeline at the moment, or whether you prefer to talk about Fort Lev or the NL project. But let's have a look at how that came together. And one of the things that a lot of our industrials are always interested in are, are some of the physical elements of these projects, like literally how much space they take up, let alone what they do for them. So whichever project you'd like to choose, I'll leave with you, but tell us a little bit about it and yeah, the kind of the physical elements of it as much as uh, the kind of conceptual elements of the technology. Okay, so I would just mention the thing, the projects that we have in, in Brazil and Italy is I think is, is a good reference cases to thermal storage, because again, there, there are not too many projects around the world today that are working with these new generation of technologies. So I think there are uh, 24 megawatt hour storage connected to a 400 megawatt steam plant or combined cycle in Italy is a very good showcase to show full scale. And this is important, by the way, also for industrial brands, even if it's not in an industrial setting, because they want to come. I go there every two weeks. Someone wants to come and kick the tires. Uh, so I'm not going too deeply on this application, but I think it's an important project. Also, the one we have in Brazil is an industrial project. We are supplying hot air to a plastic factory. And in this case, we're using biomass as the source to charge. Um, but I would focus more on projects like Tempo because it's a very good, I think, um, example of what, what is the main type of solution we see today and what our main pipeline is built off is project of electrification of heat. And uh, now these projects have a few elements to them. Um, typically, if you look just at the storage part and related uh, components or auxiliaries, it doesn't consume a lot of space. Um, and it depends on the size of the project. Some some customers need five tons of steam, some need 50, some need 500. Uh, so we need to see what's the need. But we are trying to build something which is quite compact. Unlike a chemical battery, which is usually installed in scattered areas in containers, we can stack up our units. So in, let's say, a footprint of 15 by 15 meters, and uh, up to 20 or, two or so meters, we can go to 500 megawatt hour uh, storage capacity. And then you will have some three, four containers, 40 foot containers for electrical equipment um, and some water tanks that could be part of the project or not, depends what the customer have, but not something which takes a lot of space. So it will be anything from a small project, which is kind of a fort, let's say two, one 140 foot container up to something in this case that I said a 15 by 15 uh, meters, uh, which typically we, we are able to find because also the larger facilities are typically located in areas when you have more, more available space. Um, what is sometimes challenging is if you want to build also a completely off grid or, or project which is fed from renewables, then if you want to put a, a 500 megawatt hour system also with the 300 megawatt PV field, which is a new build or greenfield project, you need more space. So some place it makes sense to have it, you know, near the customer site, if you can secure, we can secure the land. In others, we'll have it remotely or we'll charge from the grid, um, which is also a good solution. I, I don't think we mentioned it, but um, another thing that we can do with the thermal storage is not just provide clean steam to a customer. It's also to provide different um, grid services using this uh, facility. And recently in Europe, also regulation changed. And today, a thermal energy storage can play a different role in grid services in areas that has 
congestion because of ex excess renewables, and can also supply the services of reducing or increasing load on the grid uh, in some hours. Uh, why why do the cust industrial customer cares? Because when I supply more uh, services to the grid, I get more revenues. When I get more revenues, he, he can get a nice discount also on his energy cost when he's buying uh, um, energy from me. Or also when he's buying the equipment, he can also play in the market and get a few revenue streams. And this is also, I think, is a, is a game changer. So we can either charge from the grid. We can also charge from um, storage. What we do in the Tempo case is we charge from the grid. In this case, there's no space. We do have some rooftop Phoebe we are also utilizing, but most of the energy comes from the grid. They are using heavy fuel today for the for their drinks, for the production of their, their drinks. Uh, they are the big, they were the biggest beverage manufacturer in Israel. They are partly owned by Heineken, the global Heineken. And, and in Israel, uh, you do have, I would say, quite a low cost natural gas, but they don't have access to it because they don't are not part of the grid. So they're a good candidate that are using quite an expensive polluting fuel. Um, they're also part of Heineken, so they have their own ESG uh, um, uh, rules they have to, to uh, adhere to. And there we are fully electrifying their steam. So we're replacing almost the 14 ton boilers, heavy fuel boilers with our solution, charging it from, from electricity and providing this, this clean uh, heat. And, and uh, it's about 12, 32 megawatt hour system which is a nice scale um, with 14 ton peaks. Um, and I think it will be also a very nice uh, demonstration. We are supplying medium temperature. Again, most of those type of customers needs steam at 180, 200, up to 300 degrees. It is most of the cases that we that we see. Um, so this is, this is the use case. And like this, we have many more, many more, uh, mainly in Europe, in Spain, in Germany. Um, and, and I think the last months we've seen an increasingly growing number of, of leads and then um, companies coming to us looking for just this type of, of solution. And you mentioned that for the Brazilian project, the, the energy source is biomass. How does that change the dynamics of the project? Or how does that change, yeah, the kind of, the, the uh, I guess, the, the project setup, project management? Well, so that makes the problems a bit more complex. I mean, the energy storage part is quite similar, but you have additional um, uh, components that are used to uh, combust the biomass, clean the gases of the biomass. We cannot we cannot work with very clean gas biomass coming into the storage. It will damage the piping, will clog the piping. So the the, the gases have to be cleaned. So we, we, we burn a certain type of fuel. We need to understand what biomass source we have wherever we have it. Uh, charge the unit. The advantage of using a storage in this setting is that the biomass is a very constant process. You can't keep turning off and on the biomass burners. It's not very inefficient. Yes. And many processes are not continuous. Also, the project we have in Brazil, they require different cycles of heat uh, for their melting of, of their plastic molds, and they cannot go to standard biomass equipment. So you have to use natural gas, which is quite expensive in Brazil. So we installed the biomass equipment together with the solution. Um, as I said, here the biomass also protects a certain footprint, which is typically even two times more than the storage itself. Again, it depends on the size. And, and in areas when you do have low-cost biomass, uh, which is, I would say, high quality, you don't want to burn anything because then you, you, you will emit and you want to meet the standards. Um, 
it could it could make sense. We think it's a good solution, but I have to say that I think the more accessible solution, which is you know could be implemented anywhere, each any environment, and less dependent on a source of uh, fuel, which is you know changing like biomass, uh, is is electrification. But I think still it could be a good option to ones that are looking to use heat either in the form of combustion biomass, also in certain cases in recovering heat from existing um, industrial uh, procedures, which is also something which is relevant for many industries, a bit more complex. Again, I mean, uh, recovering heat sounds like a very, you know, low hanging fruit, but um, it's it's not easy. It's not easy. Sometimes the, the, the heat you're recovering is dirty. Sometimes it's not temperatures that are high enough for you to make something useful using thermal storage. So it's it's something to look at, but it's less, I would say, straightforward from just electrifying this process. And would you say, just thinking about those different types of projects you've talked about, is is do, I guess the drivers must change between companies, but are people mostly engaging with you because of um, a, a solution to intermittent power or something, or are they mostly engaging around their own? I don't know, like a, a cleaner cleaner power that you can help provide you know more constant like what what's the is there one driver above all or or is it as possibly it sounds like actually it just depends on the company about about why this makes sense to them most companies you know they don't exactly know how to do what they want to do so they they know that they where their energy bills are coming from and they say listen Look at my gas bill. Okay, so I already I, I know my electricity bill. I put PV on the roof. Maybe I put a small battery. I replaced all my lightning, so I'm very efficient on the on the electrical side. Great. Now, 60, 70 remaining percentage comes from let's say heating and cooling. I have very you know good chillers, so I'm good on cooling. Let's let's see what I'll do with my boilers. And then they start to look what are the alternatives for for um, for clean steam or clean heat. And in this point, usually they are coming uh, either to the more known, I would say, around technologies like electrical boiler. Again, I'm talking about our temperature ranges. In the low temperatures, there's also uh, pump uh, heat pumps. Um, a lot of them like to talk about uh, green hydrogen, but I think it's still not an available solution today. So they're talking about a lot, but I don't think it's relevant for providing affordable clean steam today. And then they come to us or to our competitors and say, okay, we want we want something which will be cost effective, green as much as possible, if not 100%, and, and available when we need it. We, we can't have something which is just available when the prices are low. For when an e-boiler operates online, you cannot charge when it's low and, and, and provide you know the, the energy afterwards. And we can do it. So these combinations of green reliable independent source with also something which doesn't cost me at least doesn't cost me more preferably less is i think the more if i would summarize the three four main criteria that these type of companies are usually looking for yeah okay well uh, just sort of to to begin wrapping up the conversation and i know you know you've mentioned that you're now a listed company what's what's next for you what's next for you and the company and and you know what are you looking for other forms of financing at the moment or I don't know. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what's, what's coming next for you in your development cycle. So I think, I mean, we are a listed company. We just recently listed from, from, um, 
uh, on NASDAQ, and, and, and the plan is to use this listing on NFTs to support our growth. Um, when I say growth, not necessarily mean the growth of the project. We are also looking on the project side to go to energy as a service model. And in this case, we are forming partnership either with le leading developers, I mentioned NL is one and there are others. We are building our own local entities in each major market um, in Europe and later on in, in the US and others. So we are building the local entities. We plan to bring for these local entities funding in the form of funding for the projects we will bring to the table in terms of projects that will be kind of development of energy as a service projects. Um, and of course, we, we intend to continue and, and develop the company and NASDAQ, use it to reach more investors in this field, bring partners both uh, on, on the project level, but also into the company if they bring us the right value to grow the company, because we are now in a path that we feel is about to, to significantly grow in the next year or two. And growth usually comes with a lot of needs in terms of resources, both on the project level, country level, and also on the corporate level. Well, well, it's been a, I mean, a, I, I suppose at times it must feel like a long 10 years, but as an outsider listening to the story, it sort of feels like there's been such a pace of activity during that time that's led you up to this point. Um, yeah, really. It's a roller coaster. It didn't take 10 years because we moved slow. It took 10 years because, uh, because you it got it right. Lot, they said, <laughs> yeah, to get it right, to get it to work, to get the, the markets to trust you. And, and it was a very intense 10 years. Um, but yeah, but we are, you know, happy with what we are doing. We really feel a sense of, you know, we're really happy that the market is also getting there because we could have developed this in 10 years and the market could have gone the other way. I think, you know, the fact that organizations like you exist is is nothing, it's not trivial because a few years ago, nobody heard about heat and about this further than today. There's a lot of, of, of hassle around that, and it's really in good timing for us as we are ready with the product, ready with the manufacturing, mm -hmm. and now the market is getting there. So I think also timing in life is, is important, and we feel that we are in the right timing. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Dorona. I really appreciate you spending some time talking that through. Um, and yeah, always interesting to hear about, we spend a lot of time really talking to companies, probably at a slightly earlier stage, if anything, than, than where you are. So it's great to have that um, example that both, you know, our industrials, investors, other people of interest in, you know, in the industry, but also those earlier stage technology companies can really hear, okay, you know, just buckle up. It is going to be 10 <laughs> years plus, but it's possible. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Alex, for having me and for your time. At Jano Media, we recognize that great content has the power to create impactful and positive change for lives and society. Whether that's video, live streams, photography or podcasts, partnering with us will enable you to harness the power of content to engage, inform and inspire. Reach out to us today.